This is the English Heritage Podcast. Hello, and thank you for joining us for your weekly podcast into England's past. I'm Charles Rowe. We release a new episode every Thursday, so subscribe to make sure you don't miss any of them. Now, the lives of our Victorian ancestors are a constant source of fascination. And today we're back for our latest of our popular Ask the Experts podcasts to answer all the questions you posted about the Victorians on English Heritage's social media channels. Joining us to guide us through them is our expert on all things Victorian, senior properties historian, Dr. Stephen Brindle. Hello, Stephen. Hello, Charles. So, over the next hour, Stephen, we're going to look at various aspects of life in England during the reign of Queen Victoria, which includes food, drink, inventions, style, and a certain royal residence. Starting with food and drink, then, and a question from Bruce, who got in touch to ask, what was the Victorian diet like? Well, Bruce, that very much depended on who you were and where you lived. The rural poor may have had hard-working lives, but most of them had regular access to fresh milk, eggs, cheese and vegetables, which the urban poor certainly did not. So if you lived in the country, you had a very hard-working life, but at least you'd probably eat well if you lived uh, on or near a farm, as most of them did. But for poor people, meat usually meant ham or bacon, which could be cured and thus kept. But otherwise, bread, cheese, stews made of potatoes, beans and cabbage, which can be transported and kept without refrigeration, those were the staples of the poor. And for the urban poor, there would be very little fresh meat and it was more difficult to transport vegetables. For the rich and the upper classes, of course, the diet was much more varied. The Victorians liked to eat several courses at dinner time. There would be a soup course, a fish course, a meat course, and then, of course, maybe of savouries, and then dessert. It was a diet heavy in protein, and even for the rich, it was rather poor in fresh fruit and vegetables. Not much salad there. Interesting. Moving on, Rianne Gee got in touch on Facebook to ask what foods might have been presented as a show of wealth at Victorian dinner parties. Well, Rianne, the Victorians liked an impressively dressed table, and they liked roast dishes presented on great big plates, especially involving beef, a kind of national symbol, or involving fowl like duck, goose, pheasant and partridge. And if it was a very grand dinner, you might have one of those dishes where a goose is stuffed with a duck, which is stuffed with a pheasant, which is stuffed with a partridge. Whole baked salmon, also prestigious, because expensive to transport, had to be transported in cases packed in ice. French food and French chefs were very prestigious. Queen Victoria, like many of the high aristocracy, had French chefs, and the menus were commonly written in French. For desserts, well, desserts might be made with whipped cream and exotic fruits like pineapples and oranges, which were labour-intensive and only the very rich could grow or import such things. Ice creams and sorbets were popular, also expensive to make because they involved ice, which had to be kept through the summer in an ice house. Some of those sound quite familiar, and uh, that leads us into the next question from Robin, who wants to know, are there any Victorian dishes that we still eat today? Certainly there are. You might say that the basic repertoire of what you'd think of as traditional British cooking, a lot of it is Victorian in origin, and a lot of it is in Mrs Isabella Beaton's Book of Household Management, first published in 1861, and slim print today, I think. Um, The biggest editions of it were over a thousand pages long, and Mrs Beaton includes basic household staples like shepherd's pie, Lancashire hot pot, and roast beef and Yorkshire pudding, And at Christmas, they ate roast goose more than turkey. And they liked pies, meat pies, steak pies and game pies. And there were lots of popular desserts which have probable Victorian origins, including sponge puddings and treacle tart and bread and butter pudding and bakewell tart and summer pudding. And then at tea time are crumpets and Battenberg cake and, of course, the Victoria sponge. Now, perhaps one of the easiest ways of comparing life back in the Victorian period compared to now is the price of basic goods. And Des Fernandez has got in touch via Facebook to ask how much a pint of beer cost back then. Oh, that's easy. Universally, a penny a pint. Beer was universal in Victorian Britain, indeed in any previous century. 
This was because in an age when the water supply could not be guaranteed to be clean, especially in towns and cities, beer was safe because the brewing process killed any bacteria in the water. And so beer was brewed pretty well everywhere. There were breweries in every town, brew houses almost every large country house, and in most large farms even. So beer was something produced universally, infinite numbers of local variations. If you travel to different parts of the country, the beer would taste different because the water was different and the uh, and the local recipes were different. And small or weak beer with a very low percentage of alcohol was commonly drunk with meals and given to children. Very interesting. So just going off piste with a question there, would people have had an alcohol blood level of something higher than normal compared to today in Victorian times? Um, Now that, Charles, is a very good question. I never really thought of that. Um, (laughs) If their basic fluid intake all had a very low level of alcohol, I suppose they must have, yes, though I'd never really thought about that before. It's an interesting one, isn't it, when it comes to uh, yep. driving horses and carts and Yes, sort of thing. I think about, um, yes, red-faced English people. Okay. Yes, I wonder if that had something to do with it. Yes, we will try and delve mm. into that one on, on a future episode. But um, on a related note to uh, all the drinking, Sarah Cox got in touch on Instagram. She wanted to know what the most popular alcoholic drinks were of the time. Well, following away in the lead, as we have just seen, was beer. The sort of beer and then there's everything else. And after beer, the most widely consumed alcoholic drink in England by far was gin, which is distilled from juniper berries. It's supposed to have been imported from Switzerland, and it was called Geneva, hence the name, in the 17th century. I'm, I'm not sure how far that's true. But at any rate, it arrived in England in the 17th century. In the early 18th century, there was a great gin craze in London, and there were thousands of gin shops with their own small stills, which sort of poisoned people, until they were regulated by the Gin Act sometime in the 1730s. So London had an enormous gin industry, and in the early 19th century, this was sort of put on an industrial scale, after a man called Aeneas Coffey invented the coffee still, that's coffee spelled C-O-F-F-E-Y, which enabled people to produce gin on a much larger scale and rather more uh, sort of reliably. And this enabled distillation of a better quality product on a large scale. And a huge distilling industry developed in London and a lot of names, some of which are still around, like Tanqueray and Gordon and Nicholson and Curry and Company, were making gin in central London, but it was not a respectable gin drink. Never really until the 20th century was gin respectable. It was cheap and potent and sold to the poor to numb themselves. (laughs) The expressions like mother's ruin or drunk for a penny, dead drunk for tuppence were coined in relation to it. So there's beer and there's gin, but the rich, of course, had access to a much wider range of alcoholic drinks which were made or imported on a large scale never in the 19th century as demand went up. The Victorians loved champagne, which was imported in large quantities from France, including Queen Victoria and the Prince of Wales. Port, a fortified wine, had long been imported from Oporto in Portugal, from the Douro Valley, and that was imported to Britain by long-established firms like Sandemans and Coburns, and Sherry, which was imported from southern Spain, from Jerez, uh, sherry is derived from the from the name of Jerez, mm-hmm. uh, by Anglo-Spanish firms like John Ruskin's family's firm of Ruskin de Mecken Company, and sherry became popular too. And wine was imported through warehouses mostly in the east of the city of London, mostly from France and, and from the Rhineland in this age. So the rich drank increasing quantities of wine and champagne imported and sherry. Right. That's one aspect of Victorian life covered, food and drink. We'll move on to some other more general questions, starting with a question on Facebook from Carlene Erasmus Gusson, who wants to know how Victorian people ensured that they had fresh breath and how Victorian women coped with periods. So two questions there. Fresh breath first. Well, I suspect uh, that a lot of the time they didn't have fresh breath, that is. They had mint and aniseed and licorice, all of which can be grown in gardens in England as natural breath fresheners. And there were a few products on the market. There was something called Altoids, which were breath freshening mints, which were made by Smith & Company in London from the 1780s and later by a firm called Calladon Bowser. 
And there are things called Fisherman's Friends, which were made by the Lofthouse Company in Fleetwood from 1865. And there was an American import called Sensen, a breath freshener made by the T.B. Dunn Company in Rochester, New York from the late 19th century. So there are a number of possibilities there. I think most people probably chewed aniseed or licorice or mint, but I think probably a lot of people had pretty bad breath. (laughs) Now, the question was how women coped with periods. They used tampons, the word already existed in the 1840s, which were made of cotton or linen rag, and they used what they called guard napkins, which were made of muslin or cotton rag rolled up and tied around the hips, so probably not very comfortable, and they had to be hidden under petticoats and skirts. And, of course, they had to be changed frequently, so the used ones had to be washed. People who had ladies' maids had assistance, but most women had to look after themselves and perhaps with family members' help in difficulties. And the only effective painkillers were strong opiates like laudanum, which were very addictive. So they coped, but with difficulty, Mm. um, with a lot of pain, I think. Yes. Also on Facebook, Kaz Massey has asked what the Victorian middle class was like and whether this even existed. Oh, good Lord, yes, absolutely. You might say the Victorian age was the first great area in which the middle classes really came to dominate society and social values and political life. They displaced the aristocracy, in effect, as the class which dominated British society. The 1832 Reform Act gave the vote to male householders who paid an annual rent of £10 or more, And it created about 60 new parliamentary seats, giving representation to places like Manchester and Birmingham. So from 1832, all middle-class male householders really had a vote for the first time, but only men, that is, uh, right through the Victorian age. The expansion of the economy and of professions and of trade and industry created hundreds of thousands of urban middle-class families but they cover a huge range as you can see by looking the ha- looking at the houses which were built for them so if you know london you'll know that in kensington and bayswater and pimlico there are really huge stucco covered terrace houses which are five or six stories high in areas of West London. And those are the homes of the upper middle classes, wealthy families who might have an income of £5,000 or more because a household like that would take 10 or more servants to run. And a lot of them built country houses too. And then if you go to somewhere like Putney or Victoria Park or Stoke Newington or Solihull would be the equivalent on the edge of Birmingham, you see big brick terrace houses or big detached villas, houses that are like three or four stories high with bay windows. And those would be homes to professional people and businessmen whose income might have been a £1,000 or upwards. And below them, living in terrace houses, such as you would now now find in Islington or Camden in London, in most British cities, actually, there are middle-class families of a more modest kind who might have £500 a year, who work for banks or work for industrial companies or things like doctors and solicitors. But all these people would themselves have had a couple of servants. For instance, in P.L. Travers's book, Mary Poppins, Mr. Banks is a bank employee, not a partner, but nevertheless, his household includes a cook, a maid, and of course, a nanny. And in E. Nesbitt's The Railway Children, their father is a civil servant in the war office who's arrested for spying, but the family have a cook and a housekeeper and maid. So even people in quite ordinary middle-class occupations depended on servants, one, two or three of them. So the middle class covered a huge swathe of society as it does still. And lots of people today, a lot of people listening, I dare say, are descended from Victorian middle-class families and may indeed have family photographs and a few heirlooms to prove it. Indeed. On the subject of social mobility, Dan Ree, or it might be Rhea, on Facebook, asked whether there were any jobs at the time that provided an opportunity to get an education and then improve one's social status. Ah, now, the word Dan, but it's a rather complicated answer, because there'd always been trades. I mean, since the Middle Ages, there had been trades to which a boy could be apprenticed and get a training, like a carpenter or a mason or a tailor or a cobbler or a blacksmith. Uh, You get a training, and these were respectable working-class occupations, and all of this continued right to the Victorian age. But many working-class people were not so lucky. And of those who worked on land, farm labourers or people who worked in mills, 
or as domestic servants, you'd be stuck in a menial job for life with no real prospect of advancement. So there were lots of working class people who really didn't have any prospects of advancement or very little. However, as the economy expanded and became more complex, there were more businesses which needed employees with higher levels of skill or different skills that the old systems of apprenticeship could not provide. And state education was still very basic. But if you ran a bank or an engineering business making a machinery or a shipbuilder or a railway company, you needed skilled employees who were highly literate and numerate. And so the companies and societies had to provide educational opportunities and technical training. And so by the 1870s, there was a complex culture of education for working class people in things like night schools and technical institutes and mechanics institutes. And much of this was supported in one way or another by employees and by local authorities. And there was a great culture of self-improvement among working class people who realised that it was only by getting training, by education, even if that meant getting up at 5am to go to classes or going to classes after a whole day's work. There was a great culture of self-improvement in the Victorian age. It wasn't all a bleak picture by any means. Despite all that upward mobility for people who were committed, there was also child labour. So on Instagram, Ladiosa Conde has asked why child labour was considered to be okay at the time. Well, child labour was indeed considered okay right through the Victorian age, but this wasn't specific to the Victorian age. It always had been since the beginning of history. It was a matter of economic necessity. In cultures where most people lived just above subsistence level, they simply couldn't afford to feed and clothe their children beyond childhood, which was generally deemed to end around the age of 10 or 11. Ordinary children in England or anywhere in Britain would be educated in three R's in reading, writing and arithmetic at parish schools, dame schools or national schools. And a very bright boy from a working class family, if he was lucky, might secure a place in a grammar school and be educated to the age of 18. But only the wealthy, the middle and upper classes, could afford to educate their children beyond that age. And universally, most children over the age of 10, 11 or 12 were expected to work. Boys were expected to work as farm labourers, factory labour, down mines or as chimney sweeps. A boy could reach places up a chimney that a grown man couldn't. As ship's boys, girls were expected to work as domestic servants, as maids, as seamstresses, as assistants in shops or to work in factories. A great many worked in the textile industry in the north of England. Children in orphanages were commonly contracted out by the parish authorities to work in mills and factories. And this sounds shocking to us, but it was the norm. In the early textile industry, the machinery didn't require as much strength and skill as traditional spinning and weaving had. And whole families worked in the early textile mills, and a great many of them were built on the business model that they would take contracted labour of children from orphanages because they hardly had to pay them anything. They paid money to the parish union that ran the orphanages they came from. So this, by any contemporary standards, is terrible. But Victorian Britain was the first culture in history that came over time to think that children actually should be educated and that some limits should be set to the degree to which they could be exploited. But this only happened very gradually, and it happened again sustained opposition, and not just from the mill owners. There was opposition from working-class people, from the children's parents, although possibly suborned by the mill owners, because working-class parents had grown up like that themselves, had worked since the age of 10 or 11, to, for them, it seemed normal, and they needed the money their children could bring in. The first major factories act uh, was pre-Victorian, was in 1833, and that banned the employment of children under nine, except in silk mills. You know, children with small fingers, that is very young children, were particularly valued in silk mills because silk is, silk thread is very fine and children were more readily able to tie silk than adults. Children aged 9 to 13 couldn't be made to work more than nine hours a day and children of 13 to 18 could not be made to work more than 12 hours a day or at night. That was 1833. 
and there were lots more attempts which were bitterly resisted, but the most important advance was the Factory Act of 1848, which is known as the Ten-Hour Bill, and that prescribed that women and children under 18 could not work for more than 10 hours a day. But child labour in many other areas was still unregulated, that only related factories. And finally, the Factory and Working Hours Act of 1901, after the death of Queen Victoria, raised the minimum working age to 12. <laughs> so child labour was indeed widespread right through the Victorian age, and it does seem horrible to us if it was part of their world, because it always has been. And I think what we have to remember is it's only because they created industrial society with the accelerated economic growth it produced, that in the 20th century, society was able to end child labour at any rate in Western societies. And of course, that by no means universally applies elsewhere. Yes, very interesting on that point, actually. Society has moved on to to the extent where education can be just for the sake of education. Mm. Well, let's move on to another question to do with Victorian life. Ian Wood has got in touch on Facebook. He wants to ask what concealment of birth was as this criminal offence. Apparently, one of his ancestors was charged with this. Is it something you know about, Stephen? It's a very interesting question, Ian, and uh, I should admit I had to look this up myself. Concealment of birth is an offence under the Offences Against the Person Act 1828 in England and Wales, reenacted in 1861, and the essence of it is that by the concealing a birth, whether a live or a stillbirth, from the parish authorities so that it wasn't recorded, was a crime punishable by up to two years' imprisonment, and apparently it still is. There seem to be at least two strands to this, or two reasons. If the infant was alive, concealment would mean that its existence was not recorded anywhere, and its rights, including the right to life, were obviously at risk. If the infant was dead, the question arose whether it was stillborn or indeed killed at birth, infanticide. Mm. And if the birth was concealed, then it would be impossible for the authorities to determine whether it was a stillbirth or something more serious. And what was driving this in part was that abortion in any form was illegal. Now, stillbirths, either during pregnancy or full term, were sadly common. But many women were under pressure to have babies aborted, but had no legal means of doing it. So a young unmarried woman in domestic service who was found pregnant would be at grave risk of dismissal, and even if she wasn't dismissed from her job, she would have her baby taken from her and sent to an orphanage, and she might well end up in the workhouse. A working-class woman from a poor family, perhaps already with children, and with no safe abortion available, might be under pressure from her family to conceal the birth so the baby could either be killed or taken anonymously to an orphanage so the family would not have to feed another mouth. So there were a number of possible reasons and social contexts why people might seek to conceal births, either for reasons of shame and social stigma because the child was legitimate, either because the child had in fact been murdered because there was no legal abortion available, a variety of reasons that one can imagine which are all individually tragic. So there must have been many, many cases which were never recorded and they were all individual tragedies. Uh, it's sort of subject which runs a whole book, really. Yes, and well done to Ian for personalising his question there. We also received a number of questions about the Victorians' relationship with death. For example, on Facebook, Lucy Woodley got in touch to ask why the Victorians were so obsessed with it. So I suppose the first thing to ask is whether it's fair to say that they were preoccupied with death. And and if so, what was driving this? Well, they were by comparison with contemporary society. But this is, in a way, an illusion which arises from our own relative good fortune and our own ability to insulate ourselves from the realities of death for most of life. Because we, in contemporary society, are fortunate enough to live in protective bubbles created by modern medical science and by our own standard of living, by science and technology. And the protective bubbles, medical science and the industry and the science and technology, all have 
roots in the Victorian age. The Victorians were really no more obsessed by death than any previous culture. Everyone up to then, including the Victorians, had to face death far more frequently than we do. Mothers lost babies, families lost children often. Mothers often died in childbirth, something which very rarely happens now. Older family members would die from all sorts of things like cancer and heart disease and pneumonia and tuberculosis and from transmitted conditions like cholera and smallpox and typhoid, for which we now have treatments. Then there were no effective treatments for any of these things. So for people in our society, death is usually put off until they are in their late 70s and 80s, and so for their families, there is time to prepare for it mentally. But the Victorians very often didn't have that luxury. They had to face bereavement, sometimes very suddenly and shockingly, really terrible grief, far more frequently than people do today. And writers like Charles Dickens convey this very movingly, for instance, in Dombey and Son and Bleak House and the old curiosity shop. So how do you cope with this emotionally? through religious faith, through family support and mourning, and all kinds of cultural ways of dealing with death and bereavement. And this is probably what gives us the impression that they were obsessed. Because there's far more material culture relating to death and mourning, surviving from the Victorian age than from earlier periods. I mean, think of great Victorian cemeteries like Highgate and West Norwood and Kensal Green in London, and these make very arresting visual images regularly used by filmmakers, especially rather sadly by makers of horror films. And things like photographs of funerals, images of women in mourning, mourning rings and dress, and this culture of mourning had been common in all previous cultures because they all suffered in the same way. But we tend to associate this with the Victorian age because they had photography and so much more of the material evidence of this survives from earlier periods. So the visual associations we have for this tends to be Victorian, Victorian funerals and hearses and ladies in mourning. They were obsessed by death in comparison to us, but that's because they were so much more exposed to it and they were no more obsessed than any previous culture. Yes, and of course one of the key figures who Mm. is linked with that image is Queen Victoria herself, who lost uh, her husband Prince Albert. She lost her husband after 20 years' marriage when he was only 42 years old. But I think we're coming to questions that. We will. We will come to that um, soon. Moving on to Victorian style and how Victorians express themselves through clothing, arts, architecture. Let's start Mm -hmm. with a question we received on Instagram. This is from N. Gonsignor, who wants Mm -hmm. to know what the Victorian fashion style was like. A sharp difference between men and women... For men, this was the age when our wardrobes became plain and monochrome, mostly in tones of black, grey and white, white shirts with grey or black trousers, jackets or frock coats, dark coloured hats. The one area where Victorian society sometimes allowed men's fashion to be colourful was in waistcoats, and even there, wearing a coloured waistcoat would mark you out as a bit of a dandy and possibly not quite reliable. And all the colour and the lavish decoration and the embroidery and the often elaborate styles of the 18th century and the flamboyant line of Regency costume are all gone. The major exception, of course, was dress uniforms for the army and navy, which continued to be colourful and highly decorative. But for women's fashion, it's a much more complex story, and it's a story of reaction against the simple form-following lines and plain colours which had been influenced by Greek and Roman art, and with little use of patterns of the early 19th century. And the 1840s and 50s saw a return to more elaborate artificial designs, in particular to fuller, wider skirts, such had been popular in court society in the 17th century, including the crinoline, which was supported on hoops. Early 19th century fashions had allowed women to have bare arms, as you see in many early 19th century portraits, but this was probably already seen as racy in many circles, and Victorian fashion and Victorian respectability reacted against this, and Victorian fashion covered women's arms and shoulders up completely. And it was the age of tight corseting. Tight corseting returned with a vengeance and was maintained right through the late 19th century for fashionable women, fashion icons like the Empress Eugenie of France and the Empress Elizabeth of Austria had tiny corseted waists. The Empress Elizabeth is said to have had an 18-inch waist when corseted, apparently. Wow. 
Um, the Victorians could also produce patterned fabrics printed or woven more easily than any previous age, like paisley patterns made in paisley in, in Scotland, very popular for shawls. And they also had access to a much wider range of colours with the invention of aniline dyes, which made from coal tar, starting with the colour mauve, which was invented by an English chemist called William Henry Perkin in 1853. And that was the first synthetic dye in history. So that affected fashion too. But there was a reaction against all this, against tight corsetry, and as a kind of proto-feminist movement, and for more natural flowing lines and white and light colours that were associated with the aesthetic movement in art in the 1880s and 90s. But normally, high society women were obliged to be corseted and wear long skirts of different shapes right up to the First World War. Okay. About headwear then, here's a question. Mm. Instagram, this is Charlotte Louisa from there, and she wants to know where the Victorian fashion for bonnets came from. Oh, great question, Charlotte. Well, you don't see them in mid-18th century portraits, and they start to appear in portraits and genre paintings in the late 18th century, and it seems to be a case of rich women adapting working-class women's style, and I think it's probably the first time in history when you can identify this as having happened, and it's kind of a broader style equivalent to Queen Marie Antoinette of France playing at being a farmer's wife in her hamlet in the park at Versailles. Now, the the thing was, working-class women needed to keep their hair up and covered if they were working with textiles or laundry or in housework, and if they worked outside, they needed their hair tied up and they needed protection from the sun. So working-class women wore bonnets, which leisured women had no real need to do, but it would seem that in the late 18th and early 19th centuries, leisured women adopted the bonnet as a kind of appropriation of working-class women's... What was practical wear for working-class women was adopted as fashion by leisured women. I think this was probably also about the distinction between smart women's hair being worn up and elaborately dressed on formal occasions, as you see in state portraits of Marie Antoinette and Queen Charlotte, and worn down and hanging loose at other times. And if your hair was worn down, you could wear a bonnet over it. The fashion for having your hair dressed and worn up declined and elaborately styled, declined sharply with the French Revolution and the end of French court culture. And bonnets seemed to become popular around this time. And they went with hair being worn down and naturally and loose. They kept your hair neat and free from dust. If you were going to go out in the garden or going to go out walking, then a bonnet was something practical and a sort of a a natural attractiveness to the shape. And there are references, for example, in, in Pride and Prejudice, which was published in 1805, to the Bennett sisters buying plain bonnets to decorate them. So it's a pre Victorian thing. Switching our attention from clothing to homes, Rashid has asked, how would you define the typical Victorian architectural style? Oh, it's a great question, Rashid. Um, I think one which worried the Victorians a lot because they worried that they didn't have one. And indeed, there isn't a really typical style. And this is partly because they had access to a wider range of building and techniques and a growing economy, but they didn't have their own style They knew more than ever about the architecture of the past, and for a lot of their buildings, they adopted historic styles like 16th century Italian, English Tudor, Renaissance French, 16th century Flemish, English Gothic styles, and this made them sound derivative and unoriginal, and for a long time, this kind of revivalist architecture was derided as mock or fake. But this is really very unfair. Actually, Victorian buildings are almost never straight copies. They all look quite different to their models. Many of them are real works of artistic creation. So it was an era of a great variety and experiment in architecture. They were reinventing historic styles, using new materials for new building types, and the result is actually highly distinctive. So there's no one Victorian style, but Victorian architecture is uh, is a distinctive culture, nevertheless. Yes, a lot of buildings there, potentially, with lots of different styles. But on a related note, J. Van H. on Instagram has asked what building best illustrates the age? 
it's quite a subjective question, but... uh... I love Victorian architecture, as many people now do, and it's hard to choose, as there are so many fantastic buildings, but my choice would be St Pancras Station and the former Midland Grand Hotel, designed by Sir George Gilbert Scott and built in 1864-76. There's the vast train shed, designed by an engineer called William Henry Barlow, which is 240 feet wide, the widest clear-span roof in the world at the time, great masterpiece of engineering. And the hotel at the front, designed by George Gilbert Scott, is gothic and spectacular. Gothic, but unlike any medieval building, in brick with superb stonework, brilliantly interpreted as a modern modern style to celebrate this great achievement of engineering and technology. And it's wonderful that St Pancras is still fulfilling its original function, superbly restored as the terminus of the Channel Tunnel Rail Link, and it's now a destination in its own right. Staying with architecture, Emily has asked, which of English Heritage's Victorian buildings is the most interesting to visit? Well, I'd say Brodsworth Hall, Emily, near Doncaster in South Yorkshire, not far from the A1, is a Victorian time capsule, a grand Victorian house built in the 1860s by a very wealthy family and furnished in fashionable style by London decorators with some inherited pieces but a lot of new furniture. And its interiors are like a journey through different aspects of Victorian design. There's a succession of pillared halls lined with statuary, to the dining room, which has mahogany furniture and family portraits, and an opulent French-style drawing room, which is all crimson, white and gold. And there's a top-lit billiard room with sporting pictures and a variety of sort of light, comfortable com- comfortable bedrooms. A superb illustration of Victorian taste and the comfort that wealth could provide. Indeed, and one of the properties that we've visited on the podcast, mm-hmm. so if you'd like to listen to that one, you can... Now, Lorna Beck has got in touch on Instagram and wants to know what the most popular garden styles were during the Victorian period, and also why. Ooh, good question, Lorna. At the beginning of the Victorian age, a Scottish writer and gardener called John Claudius Luden had published something called the Encyclopedia of Gardening in 1822, and Luden produced a general theory of gardening that gardens need not look natural, They could be elaborate works of art, either with symmetrical parterres, flower beds and fountains, or they could be asymmetrical with open areas of lawn and more informal layouts that they could have both native species of flowers like roses and chrysanthemums, or um, they could have imported species of trees and shrubs providing different sort of moods and settings. Victorians liked variety and so a lot of great Victorian gardens like the one at Biddulph Grange in Staffordshire create different zones to create different moods. At country houses the Victorians created magnificent kitchen gardens to grow flowers and vegetables and fruit in new style greenhouses. They developed the conservatory as a new architectural form as adjunct to houses to house exotic species, things which you couldn't grow in the open. Very rich people planted arboretums with specimen trees and shrubs from often from overseas. But later in the century, there's a reaction against the artificialness of, of Luden's vision of gardening towards a more natural, traditional English approach. And leading figures here were two designers, William Robinson and Gertrude Cheekle, and they developed what you might call an English cottage garden style with native species of flowers, roses and shrubs. And that became very popular in the 1880s and 90s and was influential really right through the 20th century. Also on Instagram, Ginger Curls would like to know how Queen Victoria influenced fashion and architecture. I don't think Queen Victoria personally was a major leader of fashion. There were respects in which the Queen probably did help to popularise certain things. The use of big shawls for women, wearing tartan and the fashion for things Scottish. And she loved having photographs taken of herself and her family and she probably helped popularise that too. So there were things the Queen helped popularise and make respectable, but I don't think she was a great fashion leader. What about architecture? Did she have any hand in that at all? Well, her husband, Albert, really did the architecture for them, both at Balmoral, their Scottish home, which he partly designed, and Osborne. But I think we're coming to that next, aren't we? 
Yes, we are more specifically going to talk about this seaside retreat, which belonged to Her Majesty on the Isle of Wight. Thomas would like to know how many rooms Osborne had and how often the royal family stayed here and whether the Queen entertained dignitaries here. So three questions in one there. Well, yes, Thomas, when you go to Osborne, you see that sort of architectural complex. But apart from the outbuildings, there are three main wings. There's one which looks like the main block at first, which is called the household wing, which housed the household with a council room where the Privy Council could meet when they came to attend Queen Victoria. And there's a more compact block called the family wing, which is really where the royal family lived. And this is like a sort of a compact country house. Most of the service rooms, the kitchen and things, are in the household wing or in the service yard. And the family wing is like a self-contained residence where they had a long drawing room, which opens into a billiard room and a dining room and a study. And on the upper floor, Queen Victoria had a sitting room while she and Albert had separate dressing rooms, but they shared a marital bed in her bedroom. So they were similarly housed to many upper-class families, really. They were at Osborne, usually in the spring and the early summer, for two or three months a year, I think. And she certainly entertained dignitaries there, because the Privy Council had to meet wherever the Queen was. And so the council room provided at Osborne. Referring to just one of the rooms at Osborne, at Erin Ofsky on Twitter, he'd like to know how English Heritage interprets the Durbar Room at Osborne these days. So for anyone unfamiliar with Osborne, this is the ornate Indian-style banqueting hall created for the Queen as she sought to embrace her status as Empress of India. Yes, that, that's right, Charles. This is the, the third wing which was added to Osborne in 1890-91, which was to celebrate Queen Victoria's proclamation as Empress of India in 1877. The Queen could not travel there. Protocol really forbade her to travel that far, though she did take holidays in most years in continental Europe. The Durbar room within the wing is a big banqueting room and it was designed by a man called John Lockwood Kipling whose son was the famous writer Rudyard Kipling and John Lockwood Kipling is an art artist who ran a school for art for Indian craftsmen and artists in Bombay and an Indian designer and contractor who was a Sikh called Bairam Singh actually made it and Bairam Singh and John Lockwood Kipling collaborated on the design a superb piece of Lake Mogul design with a lot of models, I think, in architecture in Rajputana. And Queen Victoria also commissioned a great series of portraits of Indian people from all classes of society by an Austrian artist, Rudolf Svoboda. So the Durbar Wing was a celebration of the Indian Empire for the Queen, who was fascinated by it, and uh, herself learned to read and speak Hindustani, and who had Indian servants, of whom she became very fond and attached, but who could never go there. Mm. On Facebook, Cheryl Medcalf has asked, rather mysteriously, if something bad happened on the top floor landing of Osborne. Can you shed any light on this? I don't know whether she got feelings um, when she visited or... Not that I'm aware of, Cheryl, but if you have an Osborne story with a historic source about something bad happening on the top floor landing or anywhere else, we'd certainly be interested to hear it. Thank you. Yes. Tragically, of course... Victoria's husband, Prince Albert, died on the 14th of December 1861 at the age of just 42. Gloria Marsh Fisher, via Facebook, has asked, what did Albert actually die of? Prince Albert first started getting stomach cramps and pains in August 1859. In the summer of 1861, so two years later, he became ill, partly through his habitual overwork. This is a man who worked 12-hour days. It was a very Victorian thing. In November 1861, he got soaked inspecting cadets at Sandhurst in the rain, and a couple of days later, he travelled to Cambridge to see his son, the Prince of Wales, who was involved in a scandal, a sex scandal, and he went to confront his son about this. And the Prince returned to Windsor exhausted and fell seriously ill. So that was November. He got wet, travelled to Cambridge, came back 
fell ill and he died at Windsor on the 4th of December 1861 and he was 42 years old. The official cause of death was given as typhoid fever but this has been questioned and it's actually quite unlikely. It was very probably a cover story given to avoid the need for an autopsy which would have been unacceptable to Queen Victoria and no evidence of the typhoid bacillus was ever found at Windsor if um, if the prince had contracted typhoid fever at Windsor, typhoid is a transmissible disease, some other trace of it would have been found there and none ever was. It has been suggested that the exhaustion and stomach pains which have persisted for two years suggest a chronic condition like Crohn's disease and possibly abdominal cancer combined with pneumonia. Right. But a tragic early death for a very good man. But um, regarding Prince Albert's achievements, um, you obviously mentioned that he was a very hard worker. And uh, for some people who have listened to previous episodes, they will know that Albert was quite a big proponent of technology and that the Victorian period, of course, was this age of great invention. In that vein, Dominique wants to know what the key technological advances of the age were. Well, there were a great many, Dominique. That's a great question. The development of railways, although these had Georgian origins, going deep back into the Georgian age, but the Victorians developed railways, really perfected them as a transport mode, spread them across the UK, and then Victorian engineers and investment played a huge role in spreading railways across continental Europe, North America, and in Latin America and India, and in the beginning railway networks in Africa and Australia, so really across the world. And this, together with steamships, was of vast significance in creating a global marketplace. Railways, more than any other invention, speeded up trade and economic activity, releasing mankind from the Malthusian trap, the idea defined by the late Georgian thinker Thomas Malthus, that population was always constrained by food resources so that population growth inevitably led to shortage and starvation. Well, railways and steamships, more than any other inventions, freed mankind from the Malthusian trap by creating sustained economic growth. Other key innovations, well, the use of gas as the first really widespread industrial means of providing lighting and heating in a networked way. The telephone, invented by Alexander Graham Bell. Telephone exchanges were becoming widespread in towns and cities by the end of the century and the controlled generation of electricity, which had long been known as a natural phenomenon. The Victorians invented ways of generating electricity on an industrial scale, starting with the experimental work of Michael Faraday, generating electricity, transferring it safely with copper wire, and using it safely for lighting, and then for generating rotary motion, and thus for railways and trams, and eventually to power industry. And that was all happening by 1900. It's remarkable, isn't it, really, how many advances there were, and they were all tied together and interdependent. Yes, absolutely. Uh, The interdependence really made your point, Charles. Yes. On a similar subject, Claire Connor on Facebook has asked whether steam transport innovations were seen as exciting or scary at the time. Oh, I think very much seen as both, Claire. The railways caused great public alarm when they were new. The sheer speed, 30 miles an hour than more, was faster than humans had ever travelled before. I mean, 30 miles an hour is faster than a bird can fly and faster than any horse can gallop. So, yes, it seemed terrifying. Queen Victoria insisted that her trains be driven at no more than 30 miles an hour. They could have travelled twice as fast as that. And railways indeed were not always safe, and the newspapers periodically had to report the most dreadful accidents. What sort of accidents might there have been? The sonning cutting accident, for example, just before Christmas of 1840, Charles, a train of the Great Western Railway was carrying some workmen in open trucks, and the open trucks were between the locomotive and some heavy loaded trucks behind them. And there'd been a landslide in the great cutting at Sonning, which the driver of the train could not see because it was pitch dark. And the train ran into the landslide and the workmen in their trucks were crushed 
by the weight of the trucks behind them, which crushed the trucks up against the locomotive, and six people were killed, and many more were injured. And that was one of the things which prompted the first Railway Regulation Act, which banned railway companies from just transporting working-class people, what were (laughs) termed goods passengers, in what were in fact goods trucks. Um, So the sonning cutting disaster is one, but there were all too many, yeah. Mm. Definitely scary as well as exciting, Claire. On Twitter, at MarshmallowNomo would like to know how plumbing evolved during the Victorian period. Great question and a great name, by the way, Marshmallow. (laughs) Plumbing is another great Victorian success story, which has saved Lord knows how many lives. And this, again, grew out of dreadful conditions created by the early Industrial Revolution with foul water supply and terrible drains in virtually every town and city. Because when towns really started to grow, very, very basic systems, basically of getting your water out of wells and burying all your foul waste or human waste in cesspits, which might be sustainable for a community of a thousand, just certainly weren't when the community was 20,000 and growing fast. Now, at the broad public level, the result eventually was proper organised water supplies. In London, water companies for most other cities and towns are municipal authorities set up by the town councils. Now, previously, all water supply came from wells, so it had to be pumped up mostly by hand, or it came in gravity-fed pipe systems, which were often clogged and with very little pressure. And what that meant was that it was impossible to have a water supply above basement level. You either pumped your water out of your well or it came as a trickle through a pipe with no pressure behind it. And the Victorians realised that the answer was to create systems of sound pipework with no leaks and with properly sealed junctions so water could be supplied under pressure. Because if you were going to supply water that was clean from a central source to not to hundreds of households, but to thousands and tens of thousands, you couldn't just do it by having water trickling on at its sort of own pace. You had to supply it under pressure. So you'd have to create systems of sound pipework, thousands and thousands of miles of sound pipework, and you'd have to pressurise it. And the pressure in the water main, sometimes it came from a, a head of water, like a reservoir on high ground, or you'd build a standpipe tower with a great big tank at the top to maintain the pressure in your system. But by the end of the century, it usually came from a steam engine in an engine house. And today we use electric pumps. But the fact remains that the Victorians built these systems with thousands and thousands and thousands of miles of sound pipework. It's all got to be sound, otherwise you'll lose too much water to leakage. And so you can put the system under pressure, so you can turn on a tap. And the fact that anyone in the UK today can turn on a tap almost anywhere and clean, safe, drinkable water will come out, even if you're on the third or the tenth floor, just like that. That is a Victorian achievement, which would have seemed miraculous to any previous culture in history. And another great response, of course, was sewers, was getting rid of the waste. And the Victorians also took care of that too in every major British town and city, unlike in London, where the great Joseph Bazalgette made the main drainage on which the life and health of the city still depends. And by the late 19th century, this was paralleled in almost every major town and city too. These are stupendous invisible achievements. Absolutely. Mm. That we take for granted today. Mm. Now, going back to another question from Instagram, Harzi has asked what Victorian inventions we still use today. So I suppose Victorian plumbing, for one. Victorian plumbing, indeed, yes. But look at specific inventions which we still use today. One could mention the electrical dynamo, the telephone, the incandescent light bulb, the gas cooker, the flush toilet, the turbine engine, the marine propeller, the gramophone or record player. Yeah, Pretty basic inventions, yeah, and all Victorian. As we start to wrap up our episode and we look back on the Victorian period as a whole, Susan has asked what you think the Victorians' most enduring legacy is. The Victorians shaped the world we live in to such an extent that it's really quite difficult to answer the question. I think I'd single out four broad themes. 
First, globalisation, the sense that we live in a single world, with a single market, and that globally mankind is really one community. It was first created in the 19th century by steamships and railways and telegraph communications. And unity of mankind, the idea that all individuals in all cultures could and should be regarded as equals, was hardly possible and certainly didn't apply in previous centuries. And this came as a result of globalisation and the world being mapped, though it took a very long time for its implications to grain acceptance and perhaps they still aren't fully. And the English language as a global means of communication. And finally, um, although this might be more of a surprising legacy, the sense uh, common now in our culture that mankind evolved as part of the biosphere, part of the natural order of creation in the world, rather than as a divine creation set above the rest of, of life. Well, that is a Victorian thought. It's a direct result of Charles Darwin's radical thought his Origin of Species by Natural Selection, published in 1859, rocked the age. So the Victorians were the first society in history to have to come to terms with this idea and accept its broad truth and implications. And this might seem modern, but the idea that mankind is part of the biosphere, were not some kind of divine creation set above it, is a Victorian concept. And that is in addition to all the physical legacies, the towns and cities and the buildings, objects and inventions. So the legacy is pretty huge. On Instagram, Demi Crati was keen to know what the most common misconceptions about the Victorians are. Oh, probably that they were all grim, serious and generally no fun at all. Black-clad, judgmental people in gloomy rooms. And there's certainly an element of truth there, as there would be for most previous cultures. However, the Victorians did have fun, and plenty of it. Indeed, they arguably did more for popular culture and mass entertainment than any previous culture in history, or arguably any age since. And if you consider that Victorian Britain created, amongst many other things, seaside piers, the modern seaside resort, public swimming baths, music hall entertainment, the detective novel, association football and cricket as mass spectator sports, lawn tennis, the game of golf, archery for women, cycling, children's literature, serialised novels, Sherlock Holmes and the Savoy Operas of Gilbert and Sullivan. I think the list speaks for itself, really. Uh, the Victorians did have fun and they left lots of fun things for us to do. Yes, I think you can also add Christmas to that because I think the <laughs> Christmas because yeah. the Victorian Christmas is yes. certainly the one that we tend to celebrate yeah. today as Professor Ronald Hutton told us in a previous episode which you can hear if, you, you're, if, yeah, if you're feeling true. festive in mm-hmm. spring okay lastly then let's move on to the final question which is from Harry he'd like to know if you would have enjoyed being a historian during the Victorian period in most ways and if I had good health uh, yes very much It was an age which took history very seriously and vast strides were made in filling our understanding of the past, filling huge gaps in knowledge, replacing myths and stories with documented properly researched history. And the Victorians were responsible for much uh, amazing scholarship in the history of the British Isles, but also in understanding ancient languages and thus in reconstructing the history of of non-European civilizations like Egypt and Assyria and Persia and India. The Victorians had great respect for knowledge, for research, for sound intellectual method and for truth. They built on foundations laid by the scientific revolution in the 17th century and the 18th century enlightenment to create the science-based, evidence-based intellectual culture that that underpins our modern world. We owe them so much. I have huge respect and admiration for them. I take my hat off to them. Indeed, and I think... um... Had it not been for the Victorians, we wouldn't be able to do this podcast and talk about uh, all these historical things. Not. No electricity. Yes, so many things. So many things you could list. That's a that's another episode yeah. on its own, really. Stephen, mm. this has been really fascinating. Also, thank you so much for explaining it all. Charles, thank you very much. You've been listening to the English Heritage Podcast. Next week, we're getting to know Edmund the Martyr, the 9th century king who became a saint. 
we've been really trying to work to help visitors understand that these fragments of rubble walls were actually a part, like a thriving centre of life, really. So hundreds of people were living and working here and visiting, even kings and queens and hundreds of pilgrims. Thanks for listening. See you next time.